Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back Kate Lawrence and Chris Rorick. Kate is a certified woundostomy and continence nurse who serves as the Society's Public Policy and Advocacy Coordinator. Chris is the Director of Government Relations for the Society. Today, we're going to be getting an update on what's going on with WOCN activities related to public policy and advocacy, some of the changes in the PP&A area of our website, and also some of the current legislative things going on related to the COVID pandemic. Thanks for joining me again, Kate and Chris. I'm really excited to have you both here to talk again and to update us on what's been going on with public policy and advocacy since we were speaking last year on a podcast. Glad to be here. Likewise. So, Kate, I think if you don't mind, we'll start with you, and maybe you could just refresh our listeners in case they missed our first episode on this topic about what exactly is public policy and advocacy. You hear a lot of times in in talking to other WOC nurses, the PP&A abbreviation. So, can you just update everybody about what that means and what that is? Sure, I'd be glad to. So, public policy and advocacy for the Woundosomy Continence Nursing Society is not really a committee. It's a entire venture for the society and the members. We do have a coordination team, and I'm the public policy and advocacy coordinator, and that's my role. And I work with Chris. Chris Rorick is our public policy and advocacy advisor and specialist. And I just think that Chris is part of the reason why we are so successful in our efforts. He's part of our team. And we focus on Public policy, which is activities and events that occur that influence our practice through policy development, regulation, legislation, and advocacy is sort of making sure that we include not only representation for our members, but also representation for us as providers, our consumers, so that we make sure that we, in our thoughts, are always thinking about activities that we do and how it impacts both our membership, our nurses, and how can we better help our patients through the process of policy engagement and development, regulation, engagement and development, and understanding how legislation impacts our folks. So we also include in our public policy and advocacy efforts attention towards quality as well. So it's looking at the political scene, looking at how rules are made, how healthcare is administrated, and how that impacts patients and professionals from the viewpoint of the WOC nurse. So we're constantly sort of scanning the political environment, and we often catch balls where different regulatory agencies or different collaborative opportunities come forward to influence policy and regulation and legislation whenever we can. And then you also interact with people and members in the different states as well in terms of kind of helping 
direct and give them assistance when you can with things that might be going on on the state level. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, and thanks for putting that out, Jody. The public policy and advocacy arm of the WOCN is rather new in our development as a society. We've really only been effectively kind of doing this for probably 10 to 12 years. And we include the region and affiliate policy and advocacy issues within our umbrella because things happen at a state level or even at a regional level that influence members and their patients only in that perhaps geographical area. And so we are a resource for folks. And one of the big things that we've worked on this year very heavily is developing regional and affiliate public policy resource center for our leaders at the regional affiliate level and the public policy and advocacy representatives that they have at the region and affiliate level. So we are about to launch that resource center very soon. And we're hoping that giving folks tools at the local level will help them to be able to participate in public policy and advocacy efforts regarding things that are directly affecting them around them at their workplace or are interfering with their patients' lives, different regulations and policies. So we're hoping to build that bond with our region affiliates and have a better, stronger voice together and communicate more effectively from the region affiliate level to the national and from the national level down to the region affiliate level. That sounds like that would be great and pretty efficient in terms of communication. So when we were planning to talk, this was sort of going to be a regular update because there's always a lot of new things going on that we wanted to talk about. But now we're in the midst of COVID-19. And so I was wondering, since we're affected in every aspect of our life, if you could talk about what some of the policy implications are related to walk nursing and nursing. And maybe that's a question for you, Chris. Yes, sure. Well, if there is a silver lining to to come out of a pandemic, it's the fact that it really forces policymakers to make hard decisions on policies that they otherwise would rather debate the pros and cons of before acting on. And so there have been a number of policy changes, some of which have been WOCN priorities for a number of years that have now come into practice. And I'd be happy to go through a couple of those. There have been legislative changes that have gone through from Congress, but also some temporary administrative changes that CMS has made. But some of those might foreshadow longer-term changes should there be a benefit from, from those changes can see throughout this epidemic. As far as the, the legislative changes, not to go into to too much detail here, but essentially Congress has passed four stimulus or relief packages since the epidemic. The first one was just emergency funding to help prevent the widespread transmission and immediate effects, and that was in early March. And then there was a phase two, which had to deal largely with the unemployment relief, emergency relief from unemployment, and some coronavirus testing. Phase three was the more comprehensive of the packages, known as the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. And within that, there were a number of changes that are important to WOCN and their members. In fact, the Home Health Care Planning Improvement Act, which has been a WOCN legislative priority and on our health care agenda for several Congresses, was included. And this allows NPs, PAs, and CNSs to certify home health for Medicare beneficiaries. 
and this will now become permanent. CMS actually had gone through independently and, and temporarily waived that requirement, but the CARES Act included the Home Health Care Planning Improvement Act language, which makes this a permanent change. So going forward, our members will be able to certify for home, home health for Medicare beneficiaries. We think this is going to be a tremendous benefit to, to both the beneficiaries and cost savings in the system ultimately. But again, this is something that had Congress had been debating for years, and really the, the force of this pandemic forced them to make a decision that would free up workforce and create efficiencies in the system. So it's a shame that it took a pandemic to get the legislation passed, but we are so pleased to have it done. In addition, another priority, which was the reauthorizing of the Title VIII nursing workforce programs, which are primarily funded through, through HRSA, those programs needed to be reauthorized. And again, that had been a legislative priority for the last four years, but Congress had not moved to reauthorize those, but that was also included in the CARES Act. And now those programs are reauthorized through, through 2025 and reauthorized at a higher level. So we'll have additional money to train the future workforce of nursing. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so those are two big priorities that were included legislatively. And then just very quickly, some of the administrative actions, and these are for the near term going to be temporary, but it, it changes the homebound definition. So a beneficiary is considered homebound if their physician is concerned that they may be COVID-19 positive or if they have a condition that makes them more susceptible. And so they can automatically provide them the Medicare home health benefit if in fact they believe these factors to be true. Of course, there's expanded telehealth, which we think may really transform home health care and allow you know, our workforce to do more services via telehealth. It's going to be an incredible experiment to see in the next five years how telehealth has worked within this pandemic. And we're hopeful that if folks are able to do more and do more efficiently, that telehealth services will be reimbursed at higher levels going forward. So patients are allowed to receive more care within the home via telehealth. CMS is also providing relief to home health agencies with regard to OASIS transmission. They're extending the five-day completion requirement for comprehensive assessments and waiving the 30-day OASIS submission requirement. Again, those are going to be temporary waivers, but we thought it worth mentioning to our membership. One final thing is that they've also temporarily suspended a lot of the physician supervision requirements. For example, services requiring direct supervision from a physician can be provided virtually using real-time video and audio technology, so they no longer have to physically be you know, on-site. In addition, they've waived some of the supervision requirements for non-surgical therapeutic services in the outpatient departments. Again, this is something CMS was sort of moving in the direction of to easing supervision requirements, but you know the, the conditions forced their hand to, to move more quickly than they might otherwise have liked. But we're hoping that we'll have positive outcomes from all of these temporary waivers and see them more permanent going forward. How long do you think these temporary measures will be in place? Do you have any sense of that yet, Chris? Well, most of the language says until the public emergency declaration is over. So typically the president will at some point say that he's no longer declaring this a public health emergency, at which point they may roll back some of those waivers. But they could possibly choose to extend some of them going forward. But officially they would end, you know, when the emergency period is over. 
Interesting. So that will be well communicated when Correct. that happens. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of, of things happening in a short time. Yes. Yes. There's a lot, of, a lot to stay on top of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. So last time we were together, we talked about the initiative that was going on, and it was pretty new at the time about pressure support surfaces. So I wondered if you could both update us on what's going on with that, because there were some pretty, it seemed like pretty fast changes to that whole issue regarding patient care that a walk nurse would care about. Yes, there was some regulation changes regarding pressure-reducing support surfaces and needing prior authorization. And this came out in sort of the mid-summer and was implemented in the early fall. And we wanted the membership to be aware of this, so we did do an alert on this. And it's related to post-acute care. So it's folks who are moving from acute care to home, from rehab to home, from SNF to home. And it also affects patients who are at home already with group two type surfaces, pressing reducing surfaces, whose surface may fail and they need a new surface. So prior approval process was put into place and the issue was that this prior approval process may take up to five days to occur before you get the approval and the DME can then distribute the pressure reducing surface. So we wanted folks to know about that. It involves all powered low air loss therapy and powered pressure reducing air mattresses, non-powered advanced pressure reducing overlays. There's about five codes that it involved. In the prior authorization process, we outlined in our alert and you will still find it on the website. But we wanted folks to know that this may hold up how people are being discharged in terms of getting surfaces in their homes in a timely basis. Now, Chris, I know that there's been a few things that prior Roth things have been changed a bit with this COVID-19. Could you speak to that for us? Sure. Yeah, as mentioned earlier, CMS has the authority to, to make a number of waivers during a public health emergency, and, and this was one of them. CMS recently announced that along with the DME Max, they're suspending the requirement for prior reauthorization for power mobility devices and pressure-reducing support services. Now, this, of course, will again only be through the duration of the, the public health emergency, so temporary. We would encourage you to, to work with your, your DME Max and suppliers on this. There are certain claim instructions that suppliers need to follow with regard to to claiming, making this a modifier on their claim form. So I would suggest that you work with that. And incidentally, we are going to, we're in the process of compiling a document that will lay out all of these legislative and regulatory changes that the administration has made really within this past month. And there's a lot of them. And we will include this along with claim filing instructions on that document, and that will be posted on our website, hopefully here in the very near future. Because as I said, there's been a number of legislative and regulatory changes just within this last month that we're trying to stay on top of. So that document will be up soon. And is there still a way to email you all through that PP&A section of our website? I seem to remember that if you had a question, there was a way, or you maybe gave me an email before where, say, if I had something going on and I needed some advice from either of you, was there a way that a member could communicate with you? Absolutely. 
Again, I'm the WOCN Public Policy Coordinator, and Chris is our Director of Government Relations. And if you emailed us at info, I-N-F-O, at WOCN.org, it goes to our staff office, and they make sure that we get it right away. So I was on the WOCN website recently, and the tab for the PP&A section looks amazing, and it's different. So I wondered if you could update our listeners on what you have all done with that. It looks great. Well, thank you. So I'll start just with a little bit of the background, and maybe Chris can kind of talk about some of the elements inside of the web page What we had was a lot of information previously, and it was kind of hard to navigate to find something that you might exactly want. So you went to a page, and it listed a bunch of titles, and then you had to kind of go in and look and search. And we sort of reorganized the information so that it would be more easier for individuals to find it. So now when you open up the public policy and advocacy page, there's four tabs. One is federal advocacy. One is a take action tab, one is advocacy resources, and the last one is hot topics. So when we go into federal advocacy, we have four more tabs, and that talks about reimbursement issues, competitive bidding, public policy papers, and public policy news. And each one of those, if you open it up, you get drop-down information. We set it up more kind of like a tile situation where you had to kind of pick and choose, but once you got into the tiles, you would be able to get listed documents. And inside of that is our platform for communicating with our senators and our representatives. So Chris, maybe you could talk a little bit about that platform. Sure. The goal here is to make it as easy as possible, obviously, for members to to get engaged in, in public policy and advocacy. And so if you go to our main website and and click the take action tile it brings up a software package called voter voice where it has a number of our legislative priorities stated here and then you can just go ahead and click on those priorities and walk through to compose your message to your senators or representatives just by entering your name and you can even include your own message and we have a pre-populated message but you can customize that if you wish in addition you can sign up for alerts on legislative issues you can do legislative research and you could of course find your politicians i believe both at the state level and the and the federal level so it's a pretty dynamic and easy piece of software that again allows our members to get engaged in less than five minutes to be able to send their messages to to members of Congress to, to make their voice heard. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like you don't even have to find anything to get your letter to the person that needs to get it. It's so intuitive and user-friendly. It was really nice. We've included the voter voice also for the regional affiliate toolkit for the local and regional group that may be looking at, for example, in your case, there's some sort of legislation going on in New York and your affiliate or your regional area is very concerned about this. You know, you can work as a group to be, as Chris said, using looking at your state representatives and pleading your concern. Again, creating a letter and being able to push it out all on this platform. 
And then I found, this was amazing, this letter of medical necessity template. What a great idea. So I, I bet people don't know that's there. So I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, the, the medical necessity template has been hiding in the public policy resource area for quite a long time. And the intent of this was to help WOC nurses be able to petition for extra supplies, maybe a wound care need, an ostomy need, or continence need. So basically, the template is already pre-designed, and you just sort of fill in the blanks with your patient's information and the specifics around your patient's concern gives a history diagnosis and really a guideline on how to advocate for your patient through this templated loader. I would like to let you know that this is getting a review. So pretty soon we may have an updated version of this, but currently the one that we're on the website is usable. It's just that we're trying to make a better animal, you know, times change. So we have a group re-looking at that to make sure that we keep the best focus on our patients and make sure that we're addressing all the recent things that are asked for by insurers for the most part. Wow. That's great. I remember being a new walk nurse and having no idea where to start with that. So that I think is going to be a great tool for people. And that would be under the advocacy resources, under tips and templates. Also under our advocacy resources is a grassroots toolkit, which is really a good basic description about how to do public policy and advocacy initiatives, as well as the contacts for Chris and myself and some links for healthcare organizations. Oh, okay. So last time we spoke, we talked about the society's healthcare agenda. And I wondered if you could just refresh our listeners with what that is. And then is there anything new or updated that we would want to be aware of? Sure, I'd be happy to take that. So periodically, the society creates their public policy and advocacy healthcare agenda, which the board reviews and approves, just to make sure that we're reflecting the needs of our patients and our membership in the issues that we pursue going forward. But our buckets are generally pretty large, so even smaller issues tend to fit within that healthcare agenda, one being access to WOC supplies. This, of course, is always going to be an issue, so I don't suspect that is going to be removed from the agenda anytime soon. And as you can imagine, there are a number of of policy priorities that fall within that bucket, one being payment reform. There are always ongoing changes with regard to how our services are compensated and how the the supplies themselves are are compensated. And as we're moving away from fee-for-service, moving into a more bundled payment environment, that becomes even more important. So we are trying to follow all payment reform issues going forward. As mentioned earlier, nursing workforce programs, obviously training new nurses, but also supporting our colleagues and faculty is very important going forward. So making sure that the federal support for nursing workforce and education programs remains strong. And then quality of care initiatives, obviously quality and and measuring quality has become a huge part of healthcare. And it is a lot to tackle, especially in the wound space, particularly there are a number of quality of care initiatives but that obviously has a payment component to it as they're trying to link payment to quality. But also this part of the healthcare agenda just falls within the clinical education side of the society and wanting to be on top of providing the best quality of care. So making sure that we can fund appropriate studies and follow outcomes 
not only good for the society and the patients, but there is, a, as I mentioned, a payment aspect to follow as well. So those are the four main buckets. And as I said, we try to, at least with our proactive agenda, make sure that any issue we're following or spending our time on falls within those, those four buckets of the healthcare agenda. And then you did talk about, Chris, quality and payment reform. So is that, is that more specific to pressure injury for the work we all do as far as wound care or it's all kinds of wound care? Do you have any information on that? Well, that's a big part of it for sure. Obviously, they are trying to really track quality and track outcomes with regard to present on emission requirements, with regard to, to pressure injury. They are directly linking that to payment if you don't meet the quality standards, of course, you are penalized. And not all of those quality standards are accurate with what is in practice or, or practical when it comes to how we treat our patients. So it is a real challenge trying to make sure that we provide the best clinical data that have the most realistic outcomes for the particular conditions, especially if they're linking payment to it. So we are involved very closely with having communication with CMS and with other stakeholders within the the wound care environment to make sure that those quality standards match real life practice and that even if you're providing the best possible care, it's possible that you may have negative clinical outcomes. So penalizing folks for that is a challenge. So we want to make sure that at least the standards reflect the most up-to-date clinical practices. And I said it is a challenge because Negative outcomes are sometimes a part of all healthcare, so we need to just make sure that they're as most up-to-date as possible. But that is a huge part of this is, is of course, that that's probably the most glaring example you could think of are the, the pressure injuries and directly linking that to being penalized for not treating them or meeting the standards. And each one of these sort of pillars have very broad-reaching kind of interpretations because another area of quality might be the quality of a patient's life with an ostomy and any initiatives that we're working on to look at folks who need access to care and part of that access to care has a quality component to it. So most everything the WOC nurses do has that sort of clinical and quality focused cost-effective influence. And so that's why it's one of our buckets, our bigger buckets. And we try to find areas where we can promote the quality feature of the care that our members give with good outcomes and try to make sure that we're engaged with other organizations and other groups with a focus on quality. So that's probably a really important part of where you both spend a lot of your time, I'm guessing. We do. I think the access to supplies, the access to care and the quality piece oftentimes is very intermeshed, which I think is probably the beauty of our healthcare agenda is that if we focus on those things that we know best, it fits into our buckets and we don't go off into the weeds attending to things that that really aren't as important for our members and for our patients. I did find some information about coding for deep tissue injury on the PPNA page that I was not familiar with, so I was really interested to read that. Can you kind of update us on what is going on with that, Kate? Yes. So there has been, and many of our members are probably quite aware of this, there's been, again, it's part of the quality thing, issue around present on admission, unstageable wounds, and deep tissue injuries. 
so present on admission or not present on admission, unstageable versus is it DTI. And at the time prior to October 2019, there were not specified pressure-induced deep tissue damage coding, ICD-10 codes. So they launched a whole list of ICD-10 codes in October. We wanted to just make sure it wasn't really new news, but we wanted to make sure that our members knew that those codes had been launched. Sometimes these things happen in the back door where the coders are assigning coding based on the clinician's documentations and they're not necessarily aware, but it will have an impact on clarifying actually what a patient may have come into the acute care setting with, you know, versus labeling everything unstageable and then having an issue with the evolution of a worsening of the wound. The attempt of the new codes was to kind of look at pressure ulcers that were unstageable were often debrided and then staged, unlike a deep tissue injury, which is often not appropriate to debride right away. So there was a very clinically based differential between the two processes, sort of anatomically and clinically. And this new coding was supposed to allow the distinct difference between unstageable and deep tissue injury within the clinical setting in terms of descriptors and using the code. That will be great when people come in with deep tissue injuries and they evolve as we know they do, because I've seen that in my clinical practice and, and they were coded as unstageable in the first place. And then it was like, how did this happen when it really was the normal trajectory of what you would have expect that DTI to do? That's right. And many of our members, even if it's not counted as a hospital-acquired condition, we're, we're having to report some of these processes to the state's without having really the backup of proper language or or coding or descriptors to be able to support what they were trying to describe as what was going on with the individual. So in some respects, this will help. We're very aware that there continues to be problems with hospital-acquired conditions and language and coding and sort of quality indicators. We have combined into a collaborative workforce with the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel and with AAWC to look at some of these issues around DTI unstageable and hospital-acquired language. It's a working group. There's no particular outcomes yet from this working group, but there is teams looking at research, looking at legislation, regulation, and looking at the issue of unpreventable pressure ulcers as well in kind of that same discussion. So that will be nice to get some clarity in all of those areas for for the clinician, I think. Absolutely. So Chris, it's 2020 and it's an election year. I'm dying to get your take on what kind of things you might see coming over the next few months and what's going to happen with the whole election process with the pandemic we're in the middle of and all that kind of stuff. Well, we certainly are looking at a different election environment than we were a couple months ago. That is for sure. I'm certainly not interested in making any predictions right now, (laughs) given how uncertain things are. But it does raise a lot of questions about, you know, one would hope by November we've moved beyond some of this. But at the same time, we, you know, what happens if there's a resurgence? How do you protect an election while social distancing? So policymakers are sort of going over that now to think about what are the the possible alternatives to having to physically 
go into an election, a crowded election center to cast your vote and while maintaining the integrity. So it's very early to, to think about what changes might be made, but they're certainly starting to, to look at that. I think as we learn more about the disease, you know, over the summer, we'll have a better answer. But of course, this also changes how folks view their current elected officials, whether they think they've responded favorably or not favorably to this pandemic, in addition to, you know, the the economic impact that they may be feeling, right or wrong. You know, the old saying, it's the economy, stupid. And if people are unhappy with the economy, they generally tend to be unhappy with their elected officials. You know, fair or not, it's a factor that nobody had considered, you know, a couple months ago as a bad economy being part of this election because it was a very strong economy, but likely won't be. So that has changed the election quite considerably as well. But most people think that regardless of all those factors I just mentioned, the House will most typically or most likely stay in in Democratic control. There just aren't enough in-place seats, so to speak, that Republicans could take to gain the majority. The Senate, however, has a very narrow margin. You know, Democrats, you know, if they could pick up five or six seats, they may be able to take back the majority. And there are a lot of swing states where that's possible. A lot of those are in states that President Trump did win four years ago. So they would be uphill battles. But Democrats are hopeful that they could take that back while Republicans think there are really only two seats that they have up for election are that are in states that Hillary Clinton won. So they are also feeling confident. But again, this is an election probably unlike we've ever seen before. So we won't, you know, even polling data right now has has largely stopped. Fundraising efforts for elections have largely stopped. So, you know, we're not getting the information that we usually would have this time of year in an election year. We'd have, we'd be flooded with polls and we'd be flooded with ads and fundraising but we're just not seeing that. So it's going to come, you know, probably hot and heavy <laughs> towards the end of summer and into the fall when we'll have a better idea of what things look like. And is there anything else big legislatively going on for health care? Like, it seems everything I read is it has been about this CARES Act and all of this pandemic related policy and, and legislative activity. Is there anything else going on or will there be? Do you foresee? Have you heard anything? I should say that there probably will be additional stimulus or COVID-related legislative packages to go forward. They're already talking about what would be a phase four package. So everybody is trying to attach you know, their legislative priorities to those must-move stimulus bills, much like we did with the Home Health Care Planning Act and nursing workforce. We know that those must go through and the president will most likely sign them given the crisis. So people are trying to attach their legislative priorities to that. So it's a little different legislative environment that we've seen before. It might not necessarily be a health care bill moving forward. You might try to attach your bill to these larger packages. And so we're looking at a WOCN-supported lymphedema treatment act as possibly one of those, which would allow comprehensive coverage of compression therapy for lymphedema, which Medicare will only pay for after a diagnosis and not as a preventative treatment. You know, we think that that's one of those things where if you can treat people before they get sick or have to expose themselves to another healthcare environment, then it's probably a wise investment. So, again, policymakers are looking at things a little bit differently now. So, we've sent a letter up asking that the Lymphedema Treatment Act be part of that next legislative package to move forward. 
Wow. That would be great. The society's been working on that for a long time. Yes, we are hopeful. Yeah. Anything else that we would be interested in keeping our eyes on, like as an individual nurse who's interested in this? Anything else coming up that you know about? No. You know, again, it's hard to, to say exactly, you know, what the environment is, is going to look like now because it's so clouded with, you know, economic recovery and emergency relief that we're not working within a typical healthcare legislative priority environment. I mean, nobody's talking about the ACA or individual mandates. Some of those debates that we had been, you know, having throughout the years have gone by the wayside in, in, in light of, of COVID. So it's really an unusual legislative environment that we're working in because even cost doesn't matter quite as much as it did before. People are looking at costs differently having spent, you know, literally trillions of multiple trillions of dollars just within the month, you know, to address the crisis. I think that some of the things that our members need to know about is that because we're part of the nursing community, which is an organization of nursing organizations, including the American Nurses Association, Chris alluded to the Title VIII funding, but also there's been conversations about looking at investing in nurses who have been laid off, investing in nurses who had mental health needs, and looking at funding for that, looking at strengthening public health, and you know why do we not have enough public health nurses, and what can be done about that, support for nursing organizations. The nursing organization world, you know, if you think about it, most nursing organizations gather at least annually for education and for the business of their organizations, and this is the COVID-19 pandemic is preventing those gatherings in its usual form, but that also puts organizations at risk because there's funding that's being lost. Conferences and the things around conferences are usually a bolster for nursing organizations for some positive funding in their, in their bank, and that's not happening. So there's conversations about requesting some that Congress include nursing associations and organizations in any future aid as a 501c6 organization. Lots of nonprofit nursing organizations are 501c6s, and they were not included in some of the aid packages that have gone through. And also further investment in nursing research. So the organization, the WCN, is on top of participating with the nursing community, and we always are on these sign-on letters that look at advocating for our members in those areas as well. Yeah, Kate, that's an important reminder. Thank you for that. As part of the CARES Act, there was a provision called the Paycheck Protection Program, which was designed to keep small businesses afloat. So if you were under 500 employees and you simply were closed or took a huge economic loss, you could apply for these paycheck protection programs, which were essentially free loans from the Small Business Administration to continue to pay your employees. And 501c3s were included as a qualified organization, but 501c6s were not. So there's a movement afoot in the next legislative push to include C6s as an eligible organization. And the other part of this next legislative package, which may have been concerned to our membership, is, of course, the. I think we're all looking at, at PPE and protective equipment a little bit differently now than, than we had, again, maybe a month ago. And so for the home health folks and, and the community-based setting, making sure that they have the necessary equipment that they need to go into other people's homes and 
of course, you can't use that gear in multiple homes. So we're going to see a whole new slew of infection control guidelines come out. And in fact, CDC has started that already. So I think we're looking at a new regulatory environment with regard to infection control that we'll have to stay on top of for our membership. But that also means, you know, availability of PPE. So making sure the federal funding is there for PPE, but as well as the the supply chain is functioning to make sure it's not just hospitals that are getting it, but the community-based setting as well. That's been a priority or will be a priority in this next legislative action. You don't hear that much about that, really, in reading the newspapers and things. As a home care nurse, I can say it's been very difficult. We're just barely getting some hand sanitizer that was ordered like two months ago. So my own personal theory is that most of the acute care has sort of got their stocks in order, and now whatever's left is finally trickling out into home health. And, you know, clearly that's not the way to manage pandemics. <laughs> right, right. Plus, you want to keep people out of acute care, so it would be good to have what you need in the home care setting, right? And the next wave may be based, of course, in the community. So our home care nurses need to constantly be vigilant on, you know, the possibilities of community-strained COVID, you know, resurging as months go by. To that point, one of the other possible policy options that folks are are considering as part of a future stimulus package would be, I hate to call it hazard pay, but that's essentially what it is for, for frontline workers. So folks who have been working throughout this and which regard, you know, healthcare workers specifically would be eligible for. There are sort of two different forms, whether it be an additional tax credit that they could take in in years to come or just straight up additional bonus pay by way of the federal government, perhaps through their employers to folks who have been working extra hard to keep all of us safe. That's a proposal that some in Congress are thinking about making in this next legislative wave as well. That would be well-received, I'm sure. (laughs) And well-deserved. Yeah, for sure. So will you just remind us again, if you're a WAC nurse who's interested in public policy and advocacy in that area of healthcare, what are some good and, and relatively easy ways to stay informed or to become better informed about all of this? Because I, I think it's so important. And sometimes we get lost in our day-to-day busyness and maybe could exert a little bit of energy in this and it would have big implications if we sort of knew what to do or where to get our information. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'll go first and then turn it over to Kate. I think at the very least, you should make sure you're getting updates from from WOCN. So opt in and, and make sure you're getting all of the emails you can from the society. I would encourage folks to sign up for updates from other groups that they may be members with. Of course, this all can be overwhelming and we all get a lot of updates, but that really is the best way to stay informed these days. In addition, each agency has their own subscription updates, so CMS. In fact, every agency within HHS has their own individual email sign up for newsletters. And you can get the 30,000 foot updates or you can get granular updates, small as you want. And maybe the 30,000 updates come once a month and give you a brief overview of, of what's to come or what changes have been made. But it, at least you're able to, to stay in touch. So I would sign up for as many of those as possible. 
and then just check back with the WOCN website, which we try to keep relevant with the most up-to-date information, and look for the, the legislative alerts that go out, the calls to action that we send to our membership where we're asking you to, to specifically get involved. That's probably the most important and, frankly, the easiest thing to do. As we mentioned, just send those letters to your members of Congress. I think, again, I would refer back to our grassroots toolkit for just a primer. It's an easy read, and it's well put together. It's just been recently reviewed by a group, a task force, with the assistance of Chris. We also now have a public policy forum, which is out there for conversations about public policy and advocacy issues. We're hoping that the region and affiliate public policy representatives and the leaders at the region affiliate level will be able to use that forum as kind of a tool to communicate back and forth at stuff at the real grassroots level. And I think that having conversations, you know, now that we're in this pandemic, we're not really meeting together, but at any chance that you can to have collegial conversations about the things that that are bothering you around advocacy issues, access to supplies, insurance problems, barriers in care in your various settings and have conversations with your colleagues and, you know, pose the questions and contact us if there's issues so that we can have a larger conversation. So just even just saying, you know what, this just really irritates me that I can only get, you know, two clips a month from my patient under this certain insurance. You know, that's probably not reasonable. That's not even, you know, an average standard. So have the conversation with your colleagues. You know, did you realize this was a problem? And then, you know, we have folks who have advocated for various changes in supplies and products, and they're good mentors, so we can connect people with each other. So it's all about kind of having the conversation, I think, Jody. And I, I would like to point out that we're hoping to be able to do not only our, like Chris said, our quarterly updates and our legislative alerts, but we're hoping that we can pop on these podcasts a couple times a year and do this kind of sort of regular review of the quarter. Yeah, I would love you to come back once things settle down a little bit and we can talk about all this and see what's really going on. That would be wonderful if you're able to do that. Oh, it would be delightful. Good. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for joining me tonight, and thank you for everything that you do for our society and our members and our patients. It's really amazing. And I hope to have you back on soon for an update. Thank you, Jody. Yes, anytime. If you're interested in the updated webpage for the Public Policy and Advocacy homepage, if you go under the Membership tab at the WOCN homepage, you'll see Public Policy and Advocacy, and I urge you to check it out. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of Walk Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.